Good evening and welcome to our continuing series entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. Uh, we have finally come to the seventh and the last part of what seems to be an eternal Bible study series. I've lost count of how many weeks we've been doing this, but quite a few. But very uh, few more things to cover in this last short part, and we're done. Uh, it's been a long journey, not as long as the Israelites' journey, but it's been a long journey nevertheless, and I think it has helped us to see that basically what we've looked at in the Old Testament, the, the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the Promised Land, it does indeed represent our entire Christian experience from beginning to end. That's what makes this such an amazing Bible study and such a, an amazing insight the Holy Spirit can give us. No matter where you're at in that journey, if you're uh, still a sinner in bondage, or if you've just gotten saved, or you're about to take water baptism, we have a few folks that are being baptized this Saturday, it doesn't matter where you're at in the journey, you can see yourself somewhere along the way. And you can also see where God wants to take you. Because long before they even went into Egypt, God had this whole thing planned out from the beginning to the end. And while they were in Egypt, he told them very clearly, I'm going to take you out so that I can bring you in. He knew what he wanted to bring them into. And the good news for you and me is Jesus Christ is that Passover lamb that delivers us from the bondage of sin. He's with us from that point all the way to the end. He said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And so God is with us every step of this journey. And we just completed the longest section of this whole Bible study in part six. We looked at the seven nations that dwelt in the promised land that had to be conquered. And of course, that makes up a large part of our Christian experience. We have to go through many trials, many tribulations. We have to put on the whole armor of God, wrestle with powers, principalities, sin, demons, darkness, the flesh, the devil, all kinds of enemies that we have to overcome as we are entering in to this abundance that God has prepared for us. But now we've come to the seventh and last section of this study entitled Possessing the Land. If you're following in the notes, and all of the notes for this entire series are available at our website, that's new-life-ministries.org, all of the studies are recorded and they're also uploaded there so you can uh, find all of the previous or any of the studies that you've missed uh, are recorded and put there. But we are on page 147 if you're following in the notes. And again, this is part 7, entitled, Possessing the Land. The seven nations have now been conquered. But we're going to see in just a moment that there's really a two-part 
process involved here. As those enemies are conquered and driven out, the land they once occupied has to now literally be possessed by the Israelites. It's not good enough to just defeat all those enemies. They now have to take possession of the land that was once occupied by them. And we remember way back in Genesis 15, this whole process began with God telling Abraham that he was going to give his descendants a land and that they were to take possession of that land. Some 400 or more years before the Israelites even went into bondage, God was already preparing uh, for this whole process. And in Genesis 15.7 we read, He also said to him, that's Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. To take possession of it. Not just to walk around in it, admire it, take photographs of it, but to take possession of this land, to make it your own inheritance, your own possession. And then a little later on in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, this is confirmed again. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, he's speaking to Abraham again, and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Of course, the land was meaningless if God wasn't their God. So they were both becoming God's possession, and God was giving them the land of Canaan to be their possession. Now, in Deuteronomy 7, the verse that we based part 6 off of, there are seven nations listed there that the Israelites had to defeat. And let me read that verse again, Deuteronomy 7, 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, now that's what we're talking about in this final part, actually possessing that land. So when the Lord brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Notice, together, two different processes are listed here. Driving out the nations and possessing the land. You see this again in Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations, 
greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally use the word dispossess in my vocabulary. It's kind of a strange word. But let's take a moment here and understand what God is really saying. There's a Hebrew word, uh, yarash. It's found many, many times in the Old Testament. I think about 230 sometimes. And it's a very interesting word. It can be translated two ways, possess and dispossess. And here's the reason why. The word literally means to occupy by driving out previous tenants and possessing in their place. Notice that. It's a very complex word, and it actually has two parts to its meaning. That's why it can mean both dispossess as well as possess, because both are part of this process. Driving out, dispossessing the seven nations, the previous tenants, and then occupying their land and possessing it in their place. So dispossessing and possessing. Really, part six, we looked more at the dispossessing, the driving out of those previous tenants. But now, we're looking at the second half, how to possess the land they once occupied. So that's basically what God was saying in both of these verses, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 9. It's the same Hebrew word. The land you are entering to possess will require that you dispossess nations greater and stronger than you. This twofold process of driving out and then taking possession is very important, I think, for us to understand because it's mirrored in our spiritual experience. We would like for God to just drive out every demon, cancel out every sin, give us complete victory over the flesh, the world, the devil, instantly, the minute we're saved, and from then on we have no more battles, no more problems, we just walk in pure glory, pure victory, all the rest of our Christian life until we enter into eternal glory. That would be nice, but that just isn't the way it works. And that wasn't how it worked for the Israelites either. And we come to what is probably the key passage from the Old Testament that concerns this seventh and last part, this seventh part of their entering into the land. And it's found in Exodus chapter 23. And we'll read from verse 23 to 33. And there's an expression here we're going to spend quite a bit of time examining. Little by little, they were to drive out these enemy nations and take possession of their land little by little, a little bit at a time, in other words. Here we go. 
Exodus 23, starting at verse 23. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Um, this is one instance, we mentioned this, where only six of the seven nations are mentioned. You may notice that the Girgashites are missing from this particular list. But in any event, when God brings you into their land, he goes on and says, I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. No compromise. Don't make any deals. Don't make any compromise with any of these enemies. Verse 25. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. <clears throat> I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Verse 29 is in bold, and verse 30 is in bold. These are the two verses we want to really zero in on. Listen carefully. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Let's go back to verse 29. I will not drive them out in a single year. That must have been disappointing to hear. And perhaps you're already getting a little disappointed tonight hearing me say, God's not going to zap all of your enemies in one single day when you first become a Christian. It's a process. I will not drive them out in a single year because... Now, God doesn't always explain his reasons. He doesn't have to. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But in this case, he's even giving an explanation why he's going to do this. I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. So, 
if in a single day or even a single year, Joshua led them in and they completely destroyed all seven of those nations quickly, God says that wouldn't be good because there aren't enough of you yet to really possess all of that land and it would become wild and desolate and all kinds of weeds and wild animals would grow up and fill the place. So this is going to be a little by little process. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. You know, God is a mighty God. He can do anything. He didn't really even need six days to create the universe. He could have created the whole universe in one nanosecond. But he chose to do it in six days and then rest on the seventh day to establish the pattern of our seven-day week. Work six days, rest on the seventh. And not to go too far afield tonight, there is no other reason why we have a seven-day week. We know why we have months and years. They're based on the sun and the, the moon and the planets and astronomical uh, things that are going on. But there's no reason under the sun for us to have a seven-day week. As a matter of fact, some societies have tried to change it to an eight- or a ten-day week, and it never worked, and they always ended up reverting back to the seven-day week. There's only one explanation given in Scripture why we have a seven-day week. God created in six, and he rested on the seventh. Well, he could have done the whole thing in one moment, but he chose to do it a little bit at a time. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And there's a verse in Isaiah where it talks about here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. That seems to be the way God likes to work, even in our lives. He teaches us a new precept. He works on it with us for a couple of months. Then he reveals a new concept, a new precept, and maybe that one takes us a year to learn. And little by little, he starts to sanctify us. He starts to teach us. He starts to change us from glory to glory. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a little bit at a time. And it says, verse 30 again, Little by little, I will drive them out before you until... Notice there's an, there's an until here. So God gives the reason why, because, and then he tells them how long this process is going to take. It's really dependent on the Israelites. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So the 
acceleration or the slowness of this process would really depend upon the growth of the Israelites, how rapidly they were able to increase and fill that land, literally take possession of that land. So God would drive out the enemies. He could have done all that again in one day or one instant, but he's going to do it a little bit at a time to allow the Israelites' time to increase in numbers, to grow, and become fruitful so that they can take possession of the entire land. I want to read verse 30 to you from three other translations. I like to compare different translations because sometimes you get a little bit of a different flavor on the original Hebrew or Greek. In this case, it's Hebrew. In the Amplified Bible, it says, Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and are numerous enough to take possession of the land. Notice it adds, and are numerous enough. So there must be a growth, an increase in Israel as these enemies are being driven out. In the Message Bible, which is a very loose, modern kind of a translation, it says, little by little, I'll get them out of there while you have a chance to get your crops going and make the land your own. I think that also brings in another aspect to this. Taking possession of the land literally meant getting your crops growing, uh, tending the vineyards, getting the olive trees and whatever other uh, fruit trees or vegetation or crops they would be depending on to get those crops going so that the land could sustain them. So rather than just drive out all the enemies at once, little by little, as you grow, as you learn how to farm the land and get your livelihood from the land, I'll drive out the enemies. New American Standard says, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Notice that, again, seems to go along with the previous translation, that somehow as they became fruitful in farming the land, growing the crops, learning how to reap their harvests, they would become more and more fruitful in that land. All right, that's the Old Testament picture. Now, before we get into commenting too much more about this little-by-little little process, let's first go back and understand that as Christians, you and I, we don't just get saved from hellfire. That's good. Praise God for that. We don't just have all of our sins forgiven. That's enough to praise God for all eternity. But the New Testament has many, many scriptures that reveal to us when we come to Christ, we have an inheritance. 
Our Heavenly Father wants to make sure every one of his children receives an inheritance. And at the expense of being a bit redundant, I want to go through a rather long list of scriptures just to drive this point home. You and I have an inheritance. And I think you can imagine what it would feel like if you were born into a family of great wealth and great privilege. Suppose your father was a billionaire, and you knew that he's already drawn up his will, and part of your inheritance is to inherit a billion dollars of his estate. Well, that would probably make you live a little bit differently if you knew that you had that inheritance laid up for you, that one day part of your father's riches and his glory is going to become yours. Well, that's exactly what our Heavenly Father has done for every believer in Christ. We have an inheritance. Let's look at some scriptures. Matthew 19 and verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, Jesus is speaking here, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So eternal life is the first and most important thing that we inherit as a believer. It's promised to us. It's already in our will, if you will. We are going to inherit eternal life. Secondly, James tells us that part of our inheritance is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. Inherit the kingdom. He promised those who love him. Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Again, there's an inheritance that is promised to every child of God. Notice later on in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Let me pause here for a minute and make sure we're understanding. If you're noticing in all of these scriptures, 
and a couple that we haven't read yet will bring this out even more clearly. This inheritance is not in this life. This inheritance is in the life to come. It's in heaven. It's eternal. It's after our life on this earth is spent and done with. So very clearly, this few short years that we're here on the earth is nothing compared to the inheritance that awaits us on the other side. Eternal life, the kingdom of God, a glorious inheritance. Look also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So this isn't for everyone. There's no inheritance for the wicked. Well, there is, but it's a totally different one. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. Sadly, not very many Christians are clear about this in our day. We compromise and we apologize and we mince words and we're afraid to say it like it is. These groups that Paul just listed have no chance without repentance and salvation of inheriting what we're talking about tonight. I don't care how... Uh, incorrect it is politically <laughs> we have listed here a whole group of people sexually immoral people they will not inherit the kingdom of god homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of god adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of god drunkards don't just have a problem or a disease drunkards because of their wickedness are disqualifying themselves from inheriting the kingdom of God. They need to repent and receive deliverance from God so that they can. And that's what Paul ends this discussion with, verse 11. That is what some of you were. They had people in the church there that were former homosexuals, former adulterers, former drunkards, former swindlers, but they repented. They got saved. That is what some of you were past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God we can be changed. We, we're not stuck in those lifestyles that are listed there, but if we choose to remain in them, Paul is very clear, don't be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God in that state. Alright, on to 1 Corinthians 15. Again, he mentions inheriting. I declare to you, brothers, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual inheritance. And we'll see very clearly in the next passage, it's reserved in heaven. This inheritance will be given only when we cross over to the other side. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So very clearly, Peter confirms there is an inheritance. Once you're born again, you're born into God's family, and your heavenly Father is very generous, he's very rich. And out of the riches of his glory, he has promised an inheritance for you. It'll never perish, spoil, or fade. It's being kept for you, kept for me. One Bible says it's reserved. It's, it's being reserved in heaven for you. You have to get to heaven in order to receive the inheritance. And then in Revelation 21, he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. All this refers to what John is about to see there in the New Jerusalem, the glorious city of God, the eternal kingdom of God, the bride of Christ, You'll inherit all of this, he says, to the overcomer. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. Now, back to this phrase in Exodus, little by little I'll drive them out. Not in one single year, It'll be a little bit at a time to allow for your growth, for you to increase in numbers, to grow your crops, and to become more and more fruitful. So just as in the case with the Israelites in the Old Testament, we find many, many passages in the New Testament that are written to us as believers that explain to us, this is going to be a long process. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a little bit at a time. Here a little, there a little, changing a little bit at a time, adding to this and adding to that. And little by little, God is bringing growth in grace, growth in our spiritual lives, so that we can possess and inherit. I start with a key verse in Hebrews 6, verse 12. 
Unfortunately, what I'm about to say isn't going to make you jump up and down for joy, but it's the truth. This process requires not only faith, but patience. You don't need patience if it's instant, you know, microwave fast. Patience is required when something takes a long time. Hebrews 6.12 We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Notice that. Faith and patience to inherit. So if we're going to inherit the kingdom, inherit all that God has promised, it's going to require not just faith, but also a whole lot of patience. Because it's going to take time. It's a process. And one of my favorite passages that I think highlights this is found in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And Peter outlines here this whole process of spiritual growth, sanctification, being changed a little bit at a time until we can possess what God has promised for us. Okay, Second Peter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's great news. God's given us everything we need. Everything we need. Verse 4. Through these... He has given us his very great and precious promises. We just read about inheriting what God has promised. Given us great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate, or to be a partaker in, the divine nature, and escape the corruption in the world, caused by lust, by evil desires. That's great. He's given us great promises so that we can partake of his divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by lust. I just wish it could all happen in one day. But it doesn't. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort... And notice there's a systematic approach that Peter gives here. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And it's implied, but every step that he's giving here, he's saying, add that to the previous. So it's kind of like 2 plus 2 is 4, now add 2 to that, 6, add 2 to 6, you get 8 and so forth. Verse 5 again, For this very reason, 
Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And then add to goodness knowledge. And add to knowledge self-control. Add to self-control perseverance. Add to perseverance godliness. Add to godliness brotherly kindness. And add to brotherly kindness love. Now, I don't know what your experience has been, but that didn't happen in a single day for me. I've been more than 40 years working at this, and I still haven't arrived. It's a process. Here a little, there a little. He teaches you a little bit more about faith. Then you learn a little bit about God's goodness. You add goodness to faith. Then you add some more knowledge. And then God starts working on your self-control. You got a temper. You can't control your mouth. And you work on that for a few years. Then you go through some hard times and God says, okay, now we're going to add to the self-control perseverance. You're going to learn how to keep pressing on when everything inside you says quit. And then once you've got that down, we're going to add the perseverance godliness. And then we're going to add the godliness brotherly kindness, and then last but not least, we're going to sum all that up, and you're going to learn how to love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love other people. Then he says in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, ah, very interesting, the Israelites had to increase in order for God to keep driving out little by little those enemy nations. If you keep increasing, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, and I think every one of us from time to time, we need to do an inventory take stock of our own spiritual life and progress. What kind of progress are we making? Is our faith growing? Is our knowledge of God increasing? Are we gaining more self-control? Are we learning how to persevere? Are we, are we finding ourselves now having more patience than we once had? Well, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you'll be more fruitful. Verse 9, But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers... Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And notice verse 11. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The kingdom that we have been called to inherit it's going to be a little by little, add some here, add some there process as we keep growing in grace, increasing 
in all of these qualities until finally we cross over and receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of God. Notice the similarities between this passage and what we read there in Exodus 23. Little by little, the enemy nations would be driven out so that little by little, the Israelites would take possession of the land, start farming it, become fruitful, increase in numbers, and actually become settled in the land. We as Christians, little by little, we start growing in our knowledge of the Word of God. We start learning how to pray. We start becoming stronger in our faith. And we start growing in patience, growing in Christ-like character, godliness, and all the other things that Peter listed there. Little by little, as the Christian keeps adding, growing, and increasing, he becomes more and more fruitful so that he or she can inherit, possess the eternal kingdom of God. Notice, going back to the passage we just read in 2 Peter, verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to add. Key word, make every effort to add. This is going to take a lot of effort on our part. It's not automatically going to happen. It's going to take hours and hours and hours of time praying, fasting, calling on God, going to church, fellowshipping with other Christians, um, waiting on the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to change us and transform us. It's a little by little process. And the good news is, little by little, God indeed drove out the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all the other ites, and they took possession of that land. It took quite a long time, but nevertheless, God was faithful and true to his word. So will he be with you and me, even though it seems like it's taking time. Let me tell you, folks, I've been a Christian for 42 years now. And some mornings when I wake up, I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, man, I haven't changed a bit in 40 years. How much longer is this going to take, Lord? What's wrong with me? But then the Lord comes. He encourages us. He shows us. He's working in our lives. We haven't arrived yet. Even the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, in Philippians 3, he's very clear there. He says, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't attained what I'm pressing on for, it didn't discourage him, it didn't make him quit, but this was obviously a long process, even for him, and he realized, I've not arrived yet. Let me read those verses to you. Philippians chapter 3, um, he's talking about how he wants to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Then in Philippians 3, verse 12, 
Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It was taking a long time for Paul, but he wasn't discouraged. He was still pressing. He was still forging ahead because he knew what the goal was. Um, look at Second Corinthians. This is not in your outline. It should have been put there somewhere, but... In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice again this word, increase. The reason God gave them for this little-by-little process was to give the Israelites time to increase. And... Just like that, God knows it's going to take time for us to grow in grace, increase in glory, until finally we are transformed into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. Notice it says here, we are being transformed. Not there yet, haven't arrived, we're still in process we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And just as the weeds and the wild beasts would have quickly overrun the land of Canaan if God had driven all those seven nations out in one day or even in one year, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 12, and I think there's a parallel on, on even a deeper level for you and for me. Let's look at the scripture first, and then I'll comment on it. Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45. Matthew 12, 43 to 45. Jesus said, when an evil spirit comes out of a man... It goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. Key word, I've put it in bold there. He finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits 
more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. I don't know if you can see the parallel here, but it's clear to me. Jesus warned that when evil, sin, darkness, demons are driven out of our lives, the house is swept clean. That's good. Praise God. Sweep it all out. But what we don't want is for the house to be swept clean, but then left unoccupied. You see, the, the, the message that Jesus is trying to communicate here, as these seven nations are driven out of our hearts, pride and fear and unbelief and all the other things that we looked at, as those things are driven out, something else must come to live in its place, to dispossess those nations. We must allow God's presence, His love, His word, His truth, His grace to fill our house, to dwell in us, not just to come and touch us in a Sunday service, but actually come and take up residence inside of us. Look at some scriptures on this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22. In him, that is in Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And there are a number of other scriptures here, which I'm going to wait until next time, and, and we're going to wrap this entire thing up next week. We're almost there, but there's still quite a bit I want to cover here, and I don't want to try to race through it. So I think we're going to have to end on that note and pick it up there next time. Little by little, seven nations were to be driven out, allowing the Israelites' time to increase in number, become uh, more powerful, to become stronger, and to literally dig in and take up residence in the land, plant their crops, start bringing in their harvests, and actually become permanent residents of Canaan. Likewise, as Christians, God says little by little, you need to add things in your life. You need to grow in grace, add to your faith goodness, increase in the fruits of the Spirit, self-control, goodness, kindness, um, love, etc. And as you increase in those qualities, there's less and less room for the bad things to come back. And as we allow Christ to dwell in us, the Word of God to dwell in us, and we'll look more at this next time, there's no space left for those evil nations to come back. We have now fully taken possession of the land. We've dispossessed the evil 
that was once there. And really the picture you get in this last section is the promised land is really inside you and me. The kingdom is within us. And the possession that God wants to make in our hearts, in our lives, is total. He wants us to become his treasured possession so that we become his tabernacle, we become his dwelling place, and he fills the temple with his glory. His presence fills every nook and cranny. There's no place for the devil there. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, give no place to the devil. Well, if you're full of God, and you're full of the Word of God, and you're full of all those things Peter mentioned in the previous passage, there's no room for the devil. There's no place for him to come back in. And ultimately, I think that's what it means for you and me to possess to inherit the kingdom. We'll close there and pick it up next time and complete the entire series out of bondage into abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that from start to finish, you were with the Israelites in this long process. And from start to finish, you've promised that you would never leave us you would never forsake us on this journey. As you brought us out of sin and out of darkness into the glorious kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. Lord, we know that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. And even though sometimes the process seems long and slow, and are we ever going to reach our destination, you've told us, that you would give us the faith and the patience to inherit everything that has been promised us. And God, our confidence is that he who began a good work in us, he will complete it for the day of Jesus Christ. Be with us until the end of the age, just as you promised. Complete the work that you started, Help us to make every effort to cooperate with your Holy Spirit, to be doers of your word and not hearers only, so that we can increase in Christ-likeness in all of the things that you want us to be, so that we can bring glory and honor and praise to your name. God bless each and every one with us tonight in this Bible study. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Watch over us until we meet again or until you come in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.